Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Appreciate you joining me. Before we jump into today's topic, I want to talk about last week's show. We talked about Los Chapitos, the indictments against Los Chapitos, and then the Mexican government's reaction. And in the last few days, there's been a lot of rumor and innuendo, supposition, about things that occurred and and most specifically how the DA got all of the information they did on Los Chapitos. As is often the case, some of that information comes from reliable sources, some comes from dubious sources. But I think we can come up with two things that likely occurred. The first is the DA and those they worked with almost undoubtedly used sophisticated technology to trace the actions of Los Chapitos and their network. That is from the precursor manufacturing in China through brokers to bring those precursor drugs into Mexico to then be processed into fentanyl and then transported and distributed in the United States. And I think it raises a question of how a cartel would operate knowing the sophisticated nature of the capabilities of law enforcement it, it, it probably in, in several countries, and how that's going to affect criminal organizations in the long term. You know, if you're CDS, if you're Los, Los Chapitos, and you have a multinational enterprise, how can you shield yourself from those types of monitoring and intrusions in the technological age that we live in. So that's number one. Number two is almost undoubtedly there were betrayals where friends, family, associates of Los Chapitos talked to law enforcement. I think it becomes pretty clear when you look at some of the specificity, sorry, in the indictments, it's pretty hard to see how that information could have come without having a source deeply connected to Los Chapitos. And as we've talked about over the last several weeks, that's a recurring theme, right? You know, somebody's betrayed, somebody thinks they were betrayed, and that leads to a fissure between groups within a cartel, between cartels, leads to wars between cartels. So that's Los Chapitos, and I wanted to get that out and, and have you think about it um, as we talk about today's subject. And today we're going to talk about La Familia Michoacana. LFM. And specifically, we're going to talk about their rise, their fall, and their resurrection, what that means. Uh, and we're going to look, as we've done in the past, at some of their leadership 
and some of the peculiarities of their leadership. And I want to give you a reminder of why we're doing this. On one of the social media sites that I monitor, last week there was a discussion about narco corridors and you know why these narcotics traffickers can become almost folk heroes. And you know, in some respects, I don't find it all that unusual. I mean, you know, Jesse James, John Dillinger, we can go on and on with people who become folk heroes, Bonnie and Clyde, whoever you want, John Gotti, for God's sakes. Uh, so you have that kind of just at nature, right? Um, but a lot of people also said, hey, you have to understand Mexican culture to understand that. And that really struck me in relation to the things that we've been doing. Again, looking at cartels, how they rose, how they fell, and in particular, their leadership structure. And we're doing it from a historical perspective, but also from an anthropological perspective. The more you understand the culture, the nature, the history, things that have gone right and wrong for cartels in the past, the better you can understand them today, the better you can understand uh, you know, policies and evaluate the war on drugs in the United States and Mexico when you're thinking about policy changes or policy implementations. So, La Familia Michoacana. As we've talked about repeatedly, there isn't always a great deal of information on cartels or their leaders. La Familia might be a little bit of an exception. We've got a little bit more information, but... As is often the case, some of that information from credible sources contradicts each other. So, going to give you my best analysis of the information that's available, trying to rely on as reputable of sources as we can, and in particular when... Um, when I, a source is particularly being used, I'll mention where it comes from. So, La Familia, La Familia Michoacana started off in the late 1980s, um, and it started off under the guise of being, you know, um, almost a vigilante group. Right. They were there to help and protect the poor and for the purpose of trying to bring some type of order to the state of Michoacan. Um, they ended up in the 90s working with the Gulf Cartel in an effort to keep other cartels from taking control of the illegal drug trade in Michoacan. And in that regard, they initially trained with Los Zetas. But in or about 2006, they splintered off and became their own 
independent drug trafficking organization. And we'll go into that process in detail. Like the Zetas, uh, LFM was known to be unusually violent and unusually willing to directly engage in fights with law enforcement, including the Mexican federal police. And, And we'll talk a little bit later about their particularly close ties to the Sinaloa cartel. So the cartel was initially founded by Carlos Rosales Mendoza, who was an associate of OCL Cardenas Guillen. When Cardenas Guillen is arrested, Carlos Rosales Mendoza wants to break him out. Gathers a group of his people to break Cardenas Guillen out of prison. At that time, there were about 150 special forces you know, preparing for this. Uh, they ended up arresting Rosales Mendoza in Morelia, Michoacan on uh, October 24th. 2004, Rosales Mendoza was then taken into custody. He went to Mexico City where he was um, housed at La Palma Prison for a while, and then he was taken to Puente Grande, the maximum security prison in Guadalajara. He got there October of 2004. He was sentenced for about 10 years. His capture led to the ascendancy, if you will, of two people. You've got Nazaro Moreno-Gonzalez and then Jose de Jesus Mendez Vargas. But going back to Rosales Mendoza for a minute, again, he was sentenced October 2004 for 10 years. May of 2014, he was released from prison. So that's May of 2014. Uh, August of 2014, he was arrested again, but released shortly thereafter. And then in December of 2015, he was found dead in a car that was parked at uh, Gabriel Zamora in Michoacan with three other bodies. All of the bodies apparently had been tortured. Authorities at the time suspected Ignacio Andrade Renteria, who at the time was the leader of the Knights Templar. So, again, just to recap, Carlos Rosales Mendoza, first one, he works very closely with Cardenas Guillen. He gets arrested, and as a result of his arrest, Nazario Moreno-Gonzalez, also known as El Mas Loco, comes into leadership. One thing to make clear is as of that moment that Rosales Mendoza is arrested, fractures develop in the LFM cartel. Okay. So Nazario Moreno-Gonzalez 
becomes the leader, but it's he's not an unchallenged leader. You have to love his his name, his alias, El Mas Loco. Uh, and I get, we'll go through some stuff. He, he was loco. Uh, he, he really honestly was, was like a preacher or was a preacher. And he preached his organizations, the cartels, divine right to eliminate enemies. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute, but, uh, he carried with him a Bible of his own sayings and, um, he had very specific rules for the people that worked for him, the people that were close to him, the people that were part of the cartel. So here's what we know about Moreno Gonzalez. We know that as a teenager in the 1980s, he migrated to California. At some point, he became uh, you know, a, a small-time drug trafficker. He was arrested for drug trafficking in McAllen, Texas in 1994. And then in 2003, the U.S. government charged him with conspiracy to distribute five tons of narcotics and issued an arrest warrant. And at that point, he decided to go back to Mexico. Apparently, during the time he was in the United States, he had converted from being Catholic to being a Jehovah's Witness. And when he got back to Mexico, to Khan, he preached. He preached to the poor. He had a Bible with him. And he really won, for lack of a better way, the heart and soul of some of uh, the local communities. Some actually saw him as a messiah, and uh, you know he he developed a following. In 2006, as we said, the LFM broke away from the Gulf Cartel and the Los Zetas, and Moreno Gonzalez announced the organization's independence by tossing five human heads into a discotheque. The uh, severed heads were placed near a message that read, La Familia doesn't kill for money, doesn't kill women, doesn't kill innocents. Only those who deserve to die will die. Uh, again, kind of this very curious dichotomy. You have a preacher who you know traffics drugs, but he also promoted family ma- values and even a religious agenda within his cartel. We'll talk about this in a, in a little bit, but uh, LFM was really, really heavy into meth- methamphetamines, and uh, they maintained that through the reign of Moreno Gonzalez, but also diversified into other areas, including counterfeiting, extortion, kidnapping, robbery, prostitution, etc. Um, as I said, he kind of carried with him this Bible that, or he called it a Bible, but it really it was like a spiritual manual. And 
somebody in a news report called it um, or said that it was filled with pseudo-Christian aphorisms for self-improvement. Amongst the kind of family values um, or religious constructs of the cartel imposed by Moreno Gonzalez, he prohibited his men from consuming alcoholic beverages or from doing any drugs. And allegedly he would severely punish those who mistreated women. Um, he encouraged corporal punishment of thieves by beating them and making them walk naked with billboards in city streets. He prohibited members of his cartel from consuming or selling methamphetamine, arguing that the drug was only to be smuggled into the United States for American consumers. He justified drug trafficking by stating that LFM regulated the drug trade to prevent the exploitation of the people of the state of Michoacan. The, his book um, sometimes was called the, the Sayings of the Craziest One. Talks about humility, service, wisdom, brotherhood, courage, God. He also wrote a second book called They Call Me the Craziest One. It has 13 chapters. It's kind of written like a diary. And amongst other things, it justifies his criminal activities using the rationale that, you know, look, the, the people of Michoacan are poor. They have limited opportunities. They're going to get into the drug trade. It's better for them to get into the trade with somebody like me at the head of the cartel. I can protect them. I can keep them on a straight and narrow while they're also making money. And, of course, he also says that the Mexican government is really the one to blame for the existence of the criminals. And the only way to fight those criminals is to organize in the way that they had. So, LFM at one point established some, some treaties or informal treaties, some type of agreements with the Tijuana cartel, with the Sinaloa cartel, and of course with the Gulf cartel, which allowed them to start transporting drugs through other people's territories. And that allowed for the rapid growth that LFM saw over a very short period of time. Uh, in 2008, he sent armed men to help the Sinaloa cartel, and that then allowed him to get access to the CDS-controlled drug corridors in Sinaloa and Sonora. He also had um, some access to the northern states as a result of his association with the Gulf Cartel. One of the other things that he did, and you see this get picked up by CJNG and other places, but he reportedly gave loans to farmers, funded schools and churches, 
financed drainage projects, uh, carried out several aid campaigns. He, um, his wife organized several self-help seminars. And this continued this idea that the, the, the thought that the, the founders of this cartel were doing it more for the people of Michoacan than themselves. Now, whether that's true or not, but that's the perception that they were trying to ferment in local communities, amongst the families, and those things. So that allowed them to grow, that allowed them some type of security and safety. By about mid-2009, DEA had estimated that La Familia had a foothold in 20 to 30 urban areas in the United States. Of particular note were uh, connections, distribution routes, and a distribution hub in and around Detroit. All right, now here's where things get a little bit murky. December 2010, Mexican federal police surround the village of El Alcalde. More than 2,000 officers. Apparently at that time, Moreno Gonzalez was at a local festival handing out Christmas presents to the villagers. He was tracked down by the authorities. And... All hell broke loose, okay? Police troops drive into town. The La Familia gunmen blockade entrances. They surround the state capitol to try and and, uh, make sure that reinforcements can't get in. There were gunfights for about two days, several deaths. One of the things that happened, apparently, is during this battle, the La Familia gunmen were able to remove the bodies of their fighters who had you know, been wounded or killed. After the f- fighting was over, this again is, is December 2010, after the fighting is over, The government says that Moreno Gonzalez had been killed and that the cartel took away his body. So they couldn't prove it. What we think now is that for about four years, Moreno Gonzalez actually was able to kind of hide out, stay behind the scenes, and probably had some direct involvement in the running of the cartel, but he certainly wasn't the face of the cartel anymore. And at a minimum, those fractures that we talked about between the leadership within the cartel, those fractures grew, grew deeper, grew more more pronounced. So again, we think... We think that for four years, Moreno Gonzalez kind of hit out. March 2014, Mexican Army, Mexican Navy 
allegedly found out where Moreno Gonzalez was in Tumbascatio, Michoacan. They tried to apprehend him. Gunfight. And several deaths. The PGR in Mexico says, hey, we got a body here. We've done DNA, or DNA tests. We've done fingerprint identification. And this is for sure Moreno Gonzalez. Forget what we said last time. That was our mistake. Didn't really kill him. He's dead this time. Interestingly, while they were doing the autopsy, they had about 150 law enforcement officers protecting the area. The story goes that a few days later, the body was given to um, Moreno Gonzalez's sister and nephews in the, the city of Morelia. Um, there were reports that there was a funeral held in um, the Altozana region of Morelia. And further um, reports that he was cremated and that his ashes were scattered at a village in the Tierra Caliente region in Michoacan. Okay. So, December 10, or December 2010, sorry, is when he disappears. Moreno Gonzalez is gone, at least at from a public view. And at that point, the public face of the cartel is Jose de Jesus Mendez Vargas, commonly referred to by his alias El Chango, which I've seen um, translated two different ways. One is the monkey, one is the ape. Not sure which it, it really is. Um, nor, <laughs> nor do I think it necessarily matters. Not sure if one is a whole lot better than the other. But Mendez takes over after Moreno Gonzalez goes away, right? Whether he was killed in 2010 or not, we don't know. But Moreno Gonzalez is no longer the face of the cartel. Mendez Vargas is. He continues kind of this quasi-religious element to the cartel. And his protection detail is formed and consists of 12 gunmen that he called the 12 apostles. Things don't go very well for Mendez Vargas because almost immediately his leadership is disputed by Servando Gomez Martinez and Enrique Plancarte Solis, both of whom leave, form the Knights Templar, and take a lot of men with them. Mendez is captured in um, June of 2011 by the Mexican Federal Police at a road checkpoint. He was extradited to New York in 2014 for all practical purposes 
when Mendez Vargas is captured at that checkpoint in June of 2011, La Familia Michoacan never or does not exist anymore. Want to talk about two U.S. investigations relating to the La Familia Michoacana. And these are really fascinating, very interesting, and I really knew very little about them. If anybody is listening to this and knows more or is involved in them, would love to talk to you and would love to have you come on and talk about these. But in October of 2009, U.S. authorities announced the results of a four-year investigation into the operations of La Familia Michoacana, and the investigation was named Project Coronado. At the time, it was the U.S.'s largest ever raid against Mexican cartels operating in the United States. In 19 different states, more than 300 individuals were taken into custody. It was a coordinated effort over two days involving state, local, federal authorities. Seized during the arresting phase, and there were several phases, and so these numbers grew dramatically. But just during this two-day arresting phase, they seized uh, 137 pounds of cocaine, 730 pounds of methamphetamine, 970 pounds of marijuana, 144 weapons, 109 vehicles, two clandestine drug labs, and $3.4 million in U.S. currency. All totaled, Project Coronado is said to have led to the arrest of more than 1,186 people and the seizure of approximately $33 million. Project Coronado was a multi-agency effort coordinated by the Special Operations Divisions and comprised of agents and analysts from the DEA, FBI, uh, Customs Enforcement, Internal Revenue Service, uh, Customs and and Border Protection, U.S. Marshals, ATF, uh, and from the DOJ. There also was another project called Project Delirium, that was a 20-month-long operation announced by the DOJ in July of 2011 that had resulted in more than 221 arrests of La Familia cartel members in the United States, along with significant seizures of cash, cocaine, heroin, and in particular methamphetamine. This announcement in July of 2011, followed almost immediately on the heels of the capture of Jose de Jesus Mendez Vargas, right? And so we said a couple minutes ago, Mendez Vargas gets arrested, the cartel is gone, and this Project Delirium, you know, it, it was the final nail in the coffin if it needed one. So. By 2011, it's really gone. Borderland Beat had a story 
was a very old story, but a story that I thought was particularly interesting. And it says that in November 2010, and maybe even before, LFM offered to retreat or even disband their, their cartel. But as a condition to doing that, they said that both the federal government and the state and federal police had to commit to safeguarding the security of the state of Michoacan. This was during the, the presidency of Felipe Calderon, and apparently they rejected any effort to strike a deal or engage in dialogue. Uh, at one point, uh, there was a, um, a meeting that tried to kind of bring everybody together. That failed miserably, and we'll talk about a couple of other things that, that happened. But there were various attempts to kind of reconstitute La Familia Michoacana, um, to somehow appeal back to the Knights Templar, uh, and, and, and that didn't work. Hey, we talked about the resurrection or the potential resurrection of La Familia Michoacana. And there's it, it's kind of interesting how this all comes up. This actually comes largely from an article written by Insight Crime on their website. It cites to a couple of Mexican journalists. So here's what they say. In December of 2022, a video that showed about 40 gun-toting men said that they were members of La Familia Michoacana and that they were there to clean up Mipa Alta, which is a large rural borough in southern Mexico City. So this group announced that they were in, in Mexico City. They also appear to have some presence in the states of um, Hidalgo and Morelos. The documents from Sedena that were part of that Guacamayo hat that we've talked about before show that Mexican authorities have been tracking this La Familia Michoacana since about 2020 at least. In... No, or on November 17th of last year, the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control sanctioned Johnny Hurtado Olescoaga, El Pez, and his brother, Jose Alfredo, known as La Fresa. And the Office of Foreign Assets Control said that they were the co-leaders of a new group named La Nueva Familia Michoacana. Okay. That name has been reported in the media for a couple of years. Mexico's Excelsior newspaper in May of 2022 said it was the third largest cartel in the country. Proseco said that... Um, there were two cartels, La Familia Michoacana and La Nueva Familia Michoacana, in a report that they published in January of 2021. Insight Crime says, and I 
how do I want to say this? I think that time has passed enough to show that insight was correct. Whether they were correct at the time is probably irrelevant. But the fact of the matter is the nomaker or the moniker, the name La Nueva Familia Michoacana does not represent any current active group. Okay? Instead, there simply is a group that goes by the name La Familia Michoacana. Um, so Carlos Arietta, who's an investigative journalist in Michoacana, says that the Nueva Familia Michoacana was at the name given to a criminal block formed around 2014, and it involved remnants of LFM and Knights Templar and several other smaller groups. He says that the block's intention, this new group, the Nueva Familia, was trying to fight off CJNG, who was trying to advance into Michoacan. Apparently, there was a meeting of capos or cartel bosses where they were going to kind of finalize this alliance. But <laughs> um, somebody got killed. That kind of ruined the whole idea of there being an alliance. Everybody kind of split. And La, Fami the La Nueva Familia Michoacana effectively ended there, again, according to this investigative reporter. But some of those that had come together to form this block ended up forming the Carteles Unidos, or CU. Okay. But for all intensive purposes, the brothers are in control and their name now is La Familia Michoacana. It is not a direct descendant of the former one, but that's the name. Okay. When OFAC sanctioned the brothers, they did so based on their role in the distribution of rainbow fentanyl. And there's been a lot of media reports that LFM, the new LFM, was heavy into the fentanyl trade. Insight Crimes article says that's not really true. That the fentanyl trade is controlled almost entirely by the Sinaloa cartel and CJNG. And that almost all of the production of fentanyl takes place in Sinaloa and that there really is no room for LFM in that process. As a result, LFM's growth, their resurgence, if you will, isn't because of the distribution of fentanyl, but their use of and production of methamphetamine. Okay. Keep in mind, too, that because of where Michoacana or Michoacan is in, in Mexico, 
in order to distribute fentanyl, they would have to have distribution routes. That takes them right into the territory of CDS and CJNG, which they would oppose if they were moving fentanyl, right? But because they had so much of a history and experience in the past with crystal methamphetamine, they've been able to continue that and pick it back up. Reports are that LFM controls the port of Lazaro Cardenas in Michoacan. It's the the largest seaport there. And there they're able to get access to the precursors to produce methamphetamines. And as a result, they've been able to, um, you know, again, expand their their operations. They reformulated. Interestingly enough, there's a great quote by somebody from the Zetas. And when the, the Zetas and La Familia Michoacana were working together, somebody from the Zetas said, that LFM had been driven crazy by the ice, the methamphetamine. Reports are that this La Familia Michoacana is more interested in very slow growth. Um, It has moved into some other areas of uh, criminal activity, including illegal mining which we've talked about a little bit in the past, but it's really going to um, ride the wave of methamphetamine through its control of that seaport. Um, So that's where where they are. Uh, There have been reports of saying that... um, Misho Akana has moved into different parts of the state of Guerrero, moved into other areas of Mexico City. Remember the, the criminal reporter that we talked about, Arietta? He says the cartel is not close to governing the same criminal territory it once did. It's very reduced in power compared to its other points in history. Uh, and The thing that we know for sure is that CJNG has made it clear that it would like to control more of Misho Akan, which is going to um, put them directly opposite La Familia Misho Akan. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is the history of La Familia Misho Akana, its rise the reasons for its fall, and then the resurrection in one form or another. Uh, It's a fascinating cartel to think about because of, you know, its leadership. And next week we'll talk about uh, the Knights Templar, who very closely aligned with or, or directly analogous to um to la familia but it's um it's just to me trying to understand 
how they operated is just it, it, it fascinates me. I think it's incredibly interesting. And again, if anybody out there has had direct involvement in any of the um, efforts to monitor or any of the operations with, with respect to La Familia Michoacana, please let me know. Uh, one quick little note, uh, my book, Someone Had to Die, which some of you probably have read, which focuses on the Camarena case, tells it in a, a fictional narrative, but everything in there is true. Um, it was uh, named as a finalist for a large book award, so I'm very grateful for that and grateful for everyone who has uh, supported me and encouraged me uh, and pulled me back when I went in wrong directions. And I hope that uh, we continue that with these podcasts and, and other things. So thank you to everybody who's helped on the book and on these podcasts. And we look forward to talking more next week. Again, we'll talk about the Knights Templar. But for now, this has been Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Take care.